Hello and welcome. You are listening to an informed take on current events brought to you by law students and staff of Queen's University Belfast. This is LawPod. Hi, I'm Lauren Dempster and welcome to LawPod. Today I am joined by Dr. Yusuf Kovras and we are going to talk about disappearances in Cyprus. Yusuf, can you just introduce yourself briefly for our listeners? Yes, of course. And thank you, Lauren, for the invitation. I really appreciate it. So I'm Yosef Kovras. I'm an associate professor of political science at uh, the University of Cyprus. And I work primarily on issues related to transitional justice, uh, post-conflict reconciliation, uh, with particular emphasis on the role of disappeared and missing in these deeply divided societies. That's great. Thank you, Yusuf. So as you know, the focus of today's podcast will be on Cyprus. But as our listeners will be aware, Cyprus is just one of many countries to have experienced this particular form of violence. And Yusuf, you developed one of the first global databases on disappearances. Can you tell us uh, a bit more about that and give us a sense of the scale of the problem of disappearances globally? Yeah, thanks, Lauren. Yeah. So as part of my most recently published book, I developed a new database of all the countries that experienced the problem of missing or disappeared as a result of political violence between the mid-1970s and late 2000s, 2009 in particular. And the reasons are primarily two. First of all, I just wanted to map the geographical and the temporal trends over the course of the past uh, two, three decades around this particular problem. And also wanted to, as all of us working in the field of transitional justice, our primary emphasis is on identifying those tools, those mechanisms of transitional justice that are most effective in terms of addressing the needs of the victims. But there is a lot of cherry picking in terms of the case selection. So usually we tend even subconsciously to select those cases that tend to confirm our hypothesis. But how representative are they, these these cases that we select? So I just wanted to have the universe of the cases in order then to identify those cases that are either most representative of particular motives, particular patterns, or alternatively, to identify those cases that are outliers, that, that challenge conventional wisdom or theoretical hypothesis. So you ask me about the scale of the problem globally, and I think there are two or three main findings that, at least personally, I find interesting. The first one is that in the early period of the database, that is in the mid-1970s and the early 1980s, it's primarily a problem, the problem of disappearances, isolated in Latin America. And then it's diffused globally, particularly in Asian countries and African countries. While at the same time, in the mid-1980s, the problem or the the practice of disappearances almost stops altogether in um, Latin America. It's also interesting that there is a diffusion. So while this this particular practice, this crime started as 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 a repertoire of state repression, in the mid-1980s, and particularly in the early 1990s, it becomes a widespread uh, tool, uh, a crime, used in civil wars. Uh, so there's also thematic diffusion. But having said that, and that's the, um, the bright side of it, since the mid-1990s, uh, there is significant drop globally in terms of the use of the crime 
in different countries and different continents of the world. Now, there are different explanations for this. So, for example, someone might argue that this is related to the broader process of democratization, particularly after the third wave in Eastern Europe and in other countries. Others could argue, for example, that it is the the broader decrease in the number of uh, civil wars globally after the mid-1990s. Or perhaps it's just related to the impact of the international legal norms. So nowadays we have a very advanced legal toolset that essentially creates counter incentives for uh, repressive uh, state leaders to use these tools. So they prefer the opt for using other um, tools of repression. Thank you, Yusuf. To focus then on Cyprus, can you give us a bit of an overview of the conflict there and how disappearances or, or missing persons were a factor there? Yeah. Wow, that's that's a very big question. So I will probably I'll probably need two po- podcasts just to uh, give you the background of the conflict. So yeah, if I can give just a, a very perhaps simplistic presentation of the background of the conflict. So Cyprus is located in, in the Eastern Mediterranean. It's a small island. The total population is approximately eight to nine hundred thousand people, uh, and there are two main communities on the island: the Greek Cypriot community, which is the majority, approximately eighty percent of the total population, and the remaining eighteen to twenty percent is the Turkey Cypriot community. Now, there's a very complicated uh, history, as you can imagine, of the root causes of the of violence and the civil war and the, the conflict on the island. But suffice it to say, is that there are two main waves of violence that are related to the creation of the problem of the missing in Cyprus. So the first one is the period between the mid-1960s and late 1960s, where we have the first wave of disappearances. And these are primarily carried out by Greek Cypriot paramilitary groups that, that kidnap the abduct from their homes, Turkey Cypriots, and they remain unaccounted uh, since then. We're talking about So the first wave, the primary victims, though not exclusively, are Turkey Cypriots. And the total number of cases are approximately 500. And then there's a second wave, which obviously the two are related. The second wave, which is related, uh, which which takes place in in 1974, uh, in the summer, and the Turkish invasion and occupation of half of the island. Uh, So widespread atrocities were carried out by the invading Turkish army. And we have approximately 1,500 persons who went missing during this this period. The vast majority uh, are Greek Cypriots. And obviously there is a lot of, I mean, this is only part of the the trauma created as part of these periods of violence. We also have uh, 200,000 persons who were displaced as as a result of the Turkish invasion. Thousands were killed and so on and so forth. Now, the problem of missing in Cyprus is particularly important precisely because of the the, the sheer number of the victims. So we're talking about the total number is approximately 2,000 persons within a very small island. Actually, some uh, good colleagues, Neophytos Loisidis and Haris Psaltiskar and other colleagues, they carried out a survey among victims, and it turns out that approximately 20% of the total population had reported that they had a close relative from their own families who went missing in one of these two waves of violence. So essentially, it's no one is unaffected. And this became so visible in the very first days after the Turkish invasion, where you had the mobilization of the, of the families and the victims, demanding the truth and demanding to reconnect with their loved ones. Now, the, the interesting thing about the experience of Cyprus, if I may just raise this aspect, which I find quite um, interesting, is that it's in some ways is an outlier. 
Because despite the absence of, a, of an overall political settlement, and for those of you who perhaps are not familiar with, with the conflict in Cyprus, the island remains divided, de facto divided. It's a state of very weird state of, of frozen conflict, one of very few conflicts around the world. So despite the absence of an overall political settlement, the two communities have managed to some extent to set up a relatively successful mechanism to identify the whereabouts of the missing persons. So since the mid-2000s, uh, a decision was taken by both communities to reactivate a bicommunal humanitarian mechanism, the CMP, the Committee for Missing Persons, tasked primarily to identify the remains of uh, missing persons. And since then, it has been very successful. And in fact, it has been the only successful mechanism, bicommunal mechanism on the island. And they have managed to unearth more than half of the 2,000 missing persons. Most of them have been also identified. The remains have been returned to the families. And to some extent, this is important because these families have managed to start the healing process or the, uh, start some form of closure by getting uh, these remains back. And I think the CMP is a very interesting experience, but I think I don't want to perhaps bore you with the details of this particular mechanism. Yeah. Thank you, Yusuf. I mean, you touched on there the mobilization of the families, and that is one of the areas that you focus on in your book, Grassroots Activism and the Evolution of Transitional Justice. Can you tell us a bit more about the mobilization of the families in Cyprus? Yes, of course. Well, personally, I also find it quite interesting, uh, the experience of Cyprus, because as I uh, mentioned previously, the mobilization of the families, particularly of the Greek Cypriot missing persons, was immediate. So day one after the, or a few days after the Turkish invasion, uh, you had the mobilization of these, of the relatives. Uh, in fact, if you look at the pictures of the time, you could see that there is a resemblance. There are several parallels with the mobilization of the families of the disappeared in Argentina, particularly the mothers of the disappeared, which is interesting because it takes place just a few years before the mobilization in Argentina. So I think despite the fact that the mobilization was present since the mid-1970s, there were several obstacles, which uh, I will not discuss right now because it's quite complex, the reasons why we had silence prevailing for so long. But the unique opportunity for the mobilization of the families to be more effective appeared in 2003. Why is that? Because uh, there was a decision to reopen uh, the checkpoints that essentially divided the island for almost three decades. And that was important because that was a unique opportunity to form uh, cross-community alliances, particularly among a section of the families, both Greek Cypriot and Turkish Cypriot, who held the belief that uncovering the truth, dealing with the past and fostering conditions of reconciliation was the best way forward. And that reflected the broader political position with regards to the Cyprus problem. So it was the first time that they found their natural ally, that they had similar dilemmas, similar challenges across the divide. So to some extent, that was a turning point because it led to the um, emergence of a new bicommunal group of relatives. And they used these findings from the exhumations that took place almost simultaneously in order to challenge certain myths and and essentially promote uh, reconciliation and uh, rapprochement. So you'll have, for example, the typical initiative on behalf of this organization is members, relatives from both sides of the divide coming together, going to schools in order to educate a new generation of young Cypriots around the common suffering of the past. So to some extent, these 
both the, um, the forensic findings from the graves and the grassroots mobilization of the families that became very active, particularly after 2003-2004, to some extent helped to challenge the silence, to break the silence, and also to democratize the debates around the past. So it's the first time that we see a new actor emerging and speaking about the past. Thank you, Yusuf. That's all really interesting. Can you tell us more about the challenges of recovering the disappeared in Cyprus? And also, you touched on earlier the, the global experience of disappearance. So to what extent do the challenges faced in Cyprus reflect international experience and in what ways are they distinctly local? Yeah, oh, that's another big question, I have to say. Um, so uh, I think to, to some extent, the experience of Cyprus reflects ECO's global trends, but in some ways is also different. So first of all, the biggest challenge in my, at least, uh, in my view is the politicization of the issue that was the issue was politicized by the leaders of both communities for several decades that essentially means that it was used as an instrument to play politics so in a nutshell the problem of the missing in cyprus was an extension of the cyprus problem so it was linked inextricably linked to the the, the negotiations for the reunification of the island so it was not seen as a purely humanitarian problem. In fact, Paul Sanakasia has written a, a very interesting book on this particular topic, and he's raising a, an interesting finding here, that for the Turkey Cypriots, the, for both communities, the framing of or the perception of the missing, to some extent reflected the official line, the official negotiating strategy around the Cyprus problem. So for the Turkey Cypriots, the term they use for the missing is or the martyrs. So the message is, don't look for them. They are sacrificed. They have sacrificed their lives to protect our community from the other. So we cannot leave, coexist with the other community. Uh, well, for the Greek Cypriots, these victims are known as agnoumeni, which means missing, unaccounted for. So there is an expectation to reconnect. And this reflects a broader hope that will reconnect, will reunite, reunify the island. So to some extent, that was the official discourse between partition and reunification that reflected perhaps the two sides of the conflict. But I think this is not a, this is not a particular unique feature of Cyprus. Most of the cases I know, there is a politicization. There is an intentional effort to politicize the problem. So usually political leaders in times of conflict and in deeply divided societies, they use um, human rights violations or they use victims in order to uh, secure something in the political or diplomatic arena. Uh, so that's not a unique experience. However, what is, I think, distinctive about the, the Cypriot experience is the context. So it's not a typical, a traditional, let's say, conflict which is limited to two particular communities. In fact, the vast majority of the crimes were committed against Greek Cypriots and they were carried out by the invading Turkish army in 1974 which means, essentially, that we have a very complex set of actors, some of which are external, and they have different sets of interest and obviously degrees of liability. So any effective, uh, so my perspective is that any effective investigation in the future in terms of a, if you want to launch a truth commission, for example, uh, would require reopening archives of the Turkish military, but this would, at least, it doesn't seem to be a very uh, feasible scenario at this stage. 
Similarly, the situation here becomes even more complex because of the the problem of non-recognition of different sides of the conflict. So on the one hand, Turkey doesn't recognize the Republic of Cyprus, while the political entity that was established in the northern part of Cyprus by the Turkish Cypriots is not internationally recognized by the international community. So essentially we have a very complex set of actors with different uh, interests and different degrees of liability that makes it almost unlikely to have any form of dealing with the past, such as establishing a truth commission or uh, a criminal investigation of the past. And if you ask me, I think it's also surprising uh, the fact that despite these adverse conditions, we have the two communities have managed to set up a relatively successful bicommunal uh, mechanism to identify the remains of the missing persons. Thanks, Yusuf. Can you tell us a bit more about the mechanism and the, the Committee on Missing Persons? You mentioned earlier that it has made quite substantial progress, but could you tell us a little bit more about how it actually works? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So in my view, and I think it's clear by now by my tone, but I think it's one of the most successful uh, forensic teams operating in post-conflict societies that I've encountered. Obviously, the ICMP, the International Committee for Missing Persons operating in the former Yugoslavia is, is also very successful. But obviously, we're talking about different scale of resources poured by the international community since the 1990s. So I think it's quite successful. And this can be, I think, if one takes a look at the figures. So since the the mid-2000s, the CMP has managed to exhume more than 1,200 out of the the 2,000 in total missing persons. And they have managed to identify more than 1,000, more than half of them, and returned it to the family. So the question is, obviously, the key puzzle, uh, the key question is, why now? What explains this development? So I think there's a set of reasons. So the first, I think, important factor here is the passage of time. That was essentially in Cyprus after the last period of conflict, of violence in 1975. Despite the fact that we have a frozen conflict on the island, there is no new incident of violence among the two communities or significant incident of violence. Which means that, to some extent, the memories of the past is not very present nowadays. It's still important but it's not very present to a new generation of people. And most importantly, the passage of time enabled, was used by the the institutions in the Republic of Cyprus, at least, to become stronger and more democratic. And this is evident by the fact that Cyprus became a member of the European Union. So this creates more opportunities for, and more stability for operations like the CMP to be successful. Also, since 2004, the problem has effectively been depoliticized. I mentioned before that for several decades it was used instrumentally by both sides of the conflict in order to to secure gains in the diplomatic arena. But since 2004, a decision was taken, and this is a very complex uh, discussion about why this happened. Suffice it to say that it's primarily related to the decision of the Ministry of Foreign Affairs of Cyprus of the Republic of Cyprus to become member state of the EU. So essentially, the problem was decoupled, the problem of the missing, the management of the problem of the missing, was decoupled from the political negotiations around the, the problem of Cyprus. And the final reason, I think, which is the most important one, is that is the design uh, of the, the terms of reference of the CMP. So usually the main problems 
The main problem that uh, most post-conflict societies experiencing the problem of the disappeared uh, have to face is the fact that it's very difficult to get information uh, that would lead to grave sites and would lead to exhumations. How you can convince uh, the eyewitnesses to come forward? So usually the main problem is that it's the perpetrators or eyewitnesses who have information, but they are reluctant to reveal information that could incriminate themselves. We're talking about cases of homicide, right? So they could find themselves in a court of law. So that's why I think the incentive structure in Cyprus was so effective in terms of convincing eyewitnesses and perpetrators to come forward. And essentially, the key ingredients to this success story are three. First of all, immunity from prosecution, anonymity, and confidentiality of any information that are given to the CMP that leads to exhumations. So I think these three elements offered the incentives, the motives, to eyewitnesses to come forward. And I think that's part of the reason why the CMP is so successful. So paradoxically, immunity may be the most effective way to address the humanitarian needs of the victims. And I think this is quite an interesting finding for those of us working in transitional justice, where some of the main arguments used in the literature is that essentially the best way to address the past is by using retributive models of justice. Yes, thank you, Yusuf. Obviously, as you know, we have a similar setup in the context of disappearances in Ireland with the Independent Commission for Location of Victims' Remains. So it's also an example of where a sort of immunity mechanism can facilitate the provision of information. You mentioned there that the information given to the CMP is confidential. So could you tell us about perhaps other ways in which truth has emerged about the disappearances that occurred in Cyprus and the ways in which the disappeared are remembered? Mm. Yeah, I think that's a very interesting question uh, because I think that the truth that emerges from from the graves is scientific, is relatively objective because we're talking about forensic findings, but it is the mobilization of other groups, primarily the the families, that makes this truth known to the public. So uh, I think the work of particular of the bicommunal group of missing that I mentioned before, or some courageous Greek Cypriot and Turkey Cypriot investigative journalists who tend to publish a lot stories and testimonies from massacres that took place in the past, massacres or crimes related to disappearances and missing persons, is essentially setting the terms of the truth or the, the debate around the missing persons in Cyprus. Having said that, and I think this is important, there is no officially sanctioned mechanism to deal, to investigate the past, something like a truth commission, right? So there is an absence of a mechanism that would convert these very rich empirical evidence into a master narrative about what happened in the past. And this is important, in my view, because the availability of forensic findings, coupled with the absence of an official narrative, of a master narrative around the past, has created the the very paradoxical situation of selective remembering of, of the missing in the two communities. So let me give you an example. For those that uh, believe that the Cyprus problem is primarily one of Turkey's invasion and occupation, then uncovering each each exhumation that uncovers the remains of Greek Cypriots, the Greek Cypriot missing, is a shocking revelation about the deaths, they are shot in the back of the heads, and so on and so forth. So to some extent is an evidence confirming uh, these viewpoints, that essentially were the victims here, and the problem is one of one that was created primarily by Turkey. On the other hand, those more open to self-reflection and that the belief that crimes were committed by their own community, 
they each exhumation is served as an instrument to reaffirm, to confirm the focus on victimhood, that we are both, both communities have suffered, and essentially that this common suffering is the best way forward. So this is a paradox to me because essentially we find ourselves, despite the fact that we have objective forensic scientific evidence, and this is, I think, a very important process, still this forensic evidence is used in order to legitimize two competing discourses, which on the one hand is a positive element because we have a, a democratization of, of, of the dialogue, of the debates around the past, but at the same time there is no significant break with regards to what used to happen before 2003 and four, before the CMP started resuming its activities. Great, thank you, Yusuf. Obviously, these are very complex issues and it's always, I think, difficult to distill everything into one podcast. So we can put some links for our listeners in, in the show notes to, to your book and perhaps some of your articles so they can read up some more about the Cypress situation. But yeah, that, that was really interesting. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Lauren. Yeah, I appreciate it. You have been listening to LawPod, an informed take on current events, brought to you by the law students and staff at Queen's University Belfast. Thanks to Dr. Yusuf Kofras. Please follow us on Twitter at QUB LawPod. For more information, you can also visit our website, lawpod.org. And please have a look in the show notes for more information about the topics covered today. You can find us on iTunes, Spotify, or anywhere else you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. I am Lauren Dempster. This was LawPod.